Hello, welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of TheVerge.com, a website about boats. <laughs> about boats. I was going to say, a website, a YouTube channel, mm. an Instagram experience. I feel like Instagram's a hot, hot Our Instagram is right blowing now. up. Blowing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, our editorial director, Helen Havlock, just gave an interview in which she said, I think most media companies are massively underinvested in Instagram. But not now, The what, Verge. What's she doing giving away all our secrets? Look, you can't be invested in Instagram unless you have hot shit photography. That's we, true. We have that. We have James. We got Amelia. Mm-hmm. We got all kinds of things going on. Welcome to The Verge cast where we talk about the inside baseball. The Verge the is great. media business. Um, and I want you to know it. Uh, we only have the one podcast right now, but it is proud. Yep. It stands alone. A uh, bunch of stuff to talk about this week. Oh, by the way, Dieter's in studio this Hello. week. Hello. Hi. How's it Dieter going? Dieter is here. Yeah. Paul Miller is here. Hey. Dieter, you're just here to hang out. Just here to hang. Uh, actually, I came to New York uh, because Walt Mossberg mm-hmm. received the Lifetime Achievement Award from uh, the Loeb, yeah. Loeb, Loeb Foundation, Loeb Group. Loeb he is the most thing. achieved business reporter of his lifetime. Yeah. According to Gerald Loeb. Achieved. <laughs> Achieve it. No, we went. We had a fancy dinner. Yeah. We went to a thing. I immediately, uh, I bought a very expensive suit, and uh, within five minutes of uh, starting dinner, uh, sprayed steak sauce all over myself, which is great. That sounds about right. I ripped the tag out of the pocket of my incredibly expensive suit because there was a giant white tag. It was meant to be ripped out, but I didn't like snip it out, and I like oh, tore the inside of my Welcome suit. Welcome to the Vergecast, yeah. uh, a show about Dieter's pratfalls <laughs> fancy events. Uh, anyway, but Dieter's in town. Paul's here. Yep. Let's just Let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room. Which is That's the a iPhone. really mean thing to say about Paul. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. It's rough. No, the iPhone turned 10 today, yes. this very day. Decade. Uh, Dieter, where were you? I mean, there's all kinds of, this we've had the, all kinds of stories I, on yeah. the sites. I looked it up today. 10 year is the 10 anniversary. Like T-I-N. Yep. Like the precious metal yeah. that you give your significant other. Mm. Is 10? Is 10. 10. Yeah, that's <laughs> well. We made it this far. Uh, I, I lived in Inverness, <laughs> Florida. Was uh, this come up? Did they make this up during oh the God. depression? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> right. you, wait, you lived in, in Inverness, Inverness Florida. Florida? I was running the Smartphone Experts Network of Sites, our iPhone site, uh, which you now know as iMore. Uh, back then, I had founded it as Phone Different. Oh my God! Uh, we bought two <laughs> iPhones. Uh, I thought that I would. Um, do my first ever teardown of a device, and I thought yeah. a really good device to start with was the original iPhone. Oh, my God. Huge mistake. Uh, lucky I didn't kill myself and everyone around me trying to take that thing apart. Um, and, yeah, we uh, later that year, we, we ran the first of, I think, three annual smartphone round robins where we compared um, all the different smartphones yeah. uh, against each other because at the time... The smartphone market was not a duopoly of uh, two, you know, giant operating systems. There was like a vibrant set of real competition between BlackBerry, Windows Mobile, Symbian, Palm OS, and then the iPhone. It was like a party. It was a real thing. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about this anniversary, I think. We talked about it in January when it was the anniversary of the announcement. We had Brian Merchant and his book on the show. It's just... I've been looking at Twitter all day, and it's a lot of, here I was on this day. Let me ask you this. I think I know the answer, and I think that the answer is unquestionably yes. Mm-hmm. But is it the iPhone that changed everything, or is it the modern smartphone? Right? Over the past 10 years. The... Hmm, so I think the answer is unquestionably that it is the iPhone. Yes, it I was going to say, it's, it's the iPhone because the iPhone... 
I've got this whole article that I was supposed to publish today. I didn't, but it's coming. Just get ready. By the way, Dieter, literally before the show began, came up to me and said, what are we going to talk about the show? I didn't say anything. And then he said, here's what's going to happen. Yeah. You're going to make me talk about this article I haven't written. Then I'm going to talk about it. And then I'm going to have to write it. Yep. You're doing this to yourself I, right I now. I know. Okay. Um, every other smartphone maker out there was playing by the wrong rules. So BlackBerry was like, we're better than a feature phone because we do email, but we still like know that you're, you're, we still believe your phone should last forever. And we're being really nice to the carriers by having data go through our special server that compresses the data. Yeah. Palm was like, we're better than a feature phone because like we're a PDA that's like tacked onto it. Uh, Windows Mobile was Microsoft being, we're we're going to make it a Windows computer, Uh, but they weren't thinking straight. Uh, the, The most important thing that they did in terms of positioning the iPhone was Steve Jobs said, we're going to take 1% of the phone market. He didn't say, he, you know, he showed the side with the other smartphones and made fun of their physical keyboards. He made fun of their web browsers. They deserved all of that. But he was looking past the smartphone market, which at the time was very small, and making a thing that was accessible to a regular user, not a nerd. He was making the case to normal people, not to people who thought they wanted a smartphone. And it took a minute for that to actually work. A lot of people who had flip phones looked at the iPhone and said, I don't need that. Or it's too expensive. Or it's too expensive. But Apple aggressively made the case that this is a phone for everybody, not just a phone for, you know, people on Wall Street, which is what BlackBerry was doing, or people who, you know, are hyper-organized, which is what Palm is doing, or people who uh, maintain, uh, you know, Windows XP servers, which is what Microsoft was doing. And so the iPhone plus then later the App Store, which everybody else had the idea to do, but nobody had the courage to do. I actually actually do think it took real courage for Apple to launch a centralized App Store, Um, even though I fundamentally think that platforms should be open, blah, 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 blah. Um, those two things together, I think the iPhone had a bigger part in changing the world than just the idea of a smartphone. Because the idea of a smartphone, as Brian Merchant wrote, you know, it's been around since the 90s. Yeah. Everybody had the idea. Nobody thought to take the thing out of the category of, you know, hobbyist nerd stuff to we're going to try and get 1% of the whole phone market. And setting that goal and setting that competition, it obviously meant that they've got much more than 1% now. Uh, but if they had said, we're going to take 10% of the smartphone market, it would have been, they would have done the wrong things. But they trying to aim for 1% of the entire market meant that they did the right things and they changed the, you know, they changed the world. By the way, I think, I think platforms should be inherently open, blah, 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 is yeah. the best description <laughs> of the Vergecast that's ever been written. Yeah. Wait, I got uh, two things to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think one really good, because I, I, I can't decide whether it's smartphones or it's the iPhone. But I think something that supports what Dieter is saying is how many smartphones came out after the iPhone that had keyboards. Yeah. Like the Pre. The Droid. And the Droid. And they were the, those are – they had many, many other competitive vectors against the iPhone. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the, the main one was you can slide it open and see a keyboard. Right. Yep. Like, but the, the, mo- like the, the smartphone – is is exactly what the iPhone was, except also with a front-facing camera, because that's important. Yeah. But other than that, it's basically the same thing. Other thing I wanted to say is that I cannot figure out which precious metal it is, because there's, <laughs> I'm on like four different websites. <laughs> Two of them are saying diamond. One says tin, and then one says crystal slash rock crystal slash aurora borealis. 
That Aurora are you Borealis on like goop.com right now? Thing. Yeah, it's the Aurora Borealis anniversary. Yeah, just just instead of giving a present, go out and look at the and sky. And now we enter the six month winter of our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. I've, I, it's been a decade, and it's going to be dark now for about six months. Um, you know, I were you an immediate I, iPhone convert? Because I wasn't. I was absolutely an immediate. IPhone I convert. It, I I wanted a better email experience that I could get on the iPhone, mm-hmm. and um, I I needed like I needed some of the apps that I was using on other smartphones that you could not do on the iPhone. So I had I had two phones. It was like I had just started in Gadget. Chris Sigler was like, you got to buy this Nokia N70. So I bought a Nokia. It was a dumb idea. Um, it was not a great phone. It looked real pretty. It came in a great box. Um, and I had, you know, whatever. I always had the newest Sony Ericsson candy bar. That, yeah. that, was, that was my phone. I had every, every iteration of that phone. I think the last one I had was the W810i, which is a Walkman phone. Oh, that was a good phone. I loved that phone. Um, and I remember thinking... This Nokia can do so much, but everything is such a chore. It is so difficult to do everything that it can do. Yep. Um, and I would keep on trying to do it. And then there was a – what did the Sony Ericsson's run? They ran some terrible OS. They ran, a, they ran an offshoot of Symbian. It was, was S40 the, instead of S60. Did right? they? I, I thought well, it was Maybe that S60. came later. It was, it was something else. But okay. um, it wasn't S40. But anyway, it had a Google Maps app. Ah. And I remember thinking to my in a WAP browser, a WAP web browser, and I remember thinking to myself, this Google Maps app is actually way better on my stupid feature phone than it is on this Nokia N70 because it's so much simpler, right? And so when the iPhone came out, I was like, well, this is all the things that I, it's it's all of the things I like about the Sony Ericsson. It's like simplicity, it's pared downedness, yeah, in the hardware form factor that matches this Nokia and like they all weren't on the shelf and I like it was an immediate convert and I very distinctly remember showing it to other people and their immediate reaction to it was this is too delicate because I treat my feature phone like shit yeah and, and that's like, still I can't a problem yeah it's still it's still there but nobody nobody doesn't buy a smartphone yeah. because they're afraid of cracking the screen or losing the expensive thing anymore right. but I just remember that first day mm-hmm. which was 10 years ago today um, taking it to like a party and being like, look at this thing and like showing pinch and zoom on photos and all the things that you showed people. And everyone was like, that's amazing. It's really expensive and it's too delicate. Yep. And it's funny how that perception at least has completely. Gone yeah. Away. There are two things that were requirements for phones before the iPhone. Actually, we recorded a video and then killed it because it felt too much like a weird review of, of like the things that are still a problem with the iPhone. Yeah. And before the iPhone, everyone assumed that a phone battery would last somewhere between three and seven days. Mm -hmm. And everyone assumed that you could make a phone that you would be able to drop and kick around and throw in a bag with keys and it would be fine. Yeah. And no one thought, well, what if if we didn't have those assumptions, what would we be able to do? And are those things more important? The answer has turned out to be yes. I'm still not happy about the durability of smartphones and I'm definitely not happy about the battery life of smartphones. But the trade-off is you get a smartphone. <laughs> uh, Paul, were you an immediate convert? We yeah. were at Engadge. I remember that day very clearly. I had to travel home for a, a wedding. Yeah. Uh, I got to travel home. It was a very special wedding. I was very happy I was there. Uh, and I 
some reason had more money in my bank account than I normally do. <laughs> and I walked into a singular store and I bought an iPhone and then I and I activated it and I went to like a bowling alley with like some like hometown friends and like showed them all YouTube. I feel like that was the only thing that I could like impress anybody by. Was because the, the, the like it had that old timey TV logo, yeah, and and you could just load videos and show, yeah, like I, I, I don't know, you just I just remember that YouTube was like the killer feature at that at that time, and it's funny because I had you know I had uh, a PDA in high school, a friend of mine had like a, a an iPack in high school. Um, like it's you know all these, all the, the that's the thing is we'd had computers in our pockets before the iPhone yeah but there was definitely something new about the iPhone that just that did it better but it, it really wasn't that interesting until until the App Store I, I definitely agree with that yeah and I think that's the what's well, I was supposed to go on CNBC today yeah. <laughs> talk about the iPhone in ten years and I got bumped. Because Trump did something stupid on Twitter. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It, it, surprisingly, oh. it was not Twitter. It was they announced sanctions on Chinese banks. Oh, okay. But like literally, they were like, Neelai, tell tell us about the iPhone at 10 and what's coming next. And I started saying my first sentence and the anchor interrupted me and they cut to the White House. Wow. For like a live press conference with the Treasury Secretary. And I was like, okay. All right. So what were you going to say? But here's what I was going to say on, on CNBC today. The, the overwhelming – and this is why I think it's unquestionably the iPhone and not smartphones because mm. I, I think it comes down to the App Store. The overwhelming story of the last 10 years is that every other category has converged into the iPhone. So like cameras are not a market the way they used to be a market right. because of the iPhone. Uh, taxi dispatch is not a market because it is now converged into the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that YouTube app, right? Yep. Like, ESPN is failing because people watch video on their smartphones. Mm. Everything has converged into this the iPhone. And I think the Nintendo sells iPhone games now. Yeah, but they're still <laughs> they've still got other ideas over there. Um but yeah, just like down you just keep going down the line. The iPod is not a business anymore because it was converged into the iPhone. That was Apple's biggest selling product yeah. for a minute there. Um and there, it's hard to think of another Microsoft kind of, is no longer the dominant company in computing. Right, because of the iPhone and it, and its cloud services run the back end of so many apps, right? Yeah. and it's all it's all just converged into the iPhone. Um, it, literally, just shopping. Yep, Amazon just bought a grocery store because you're going to be able to push a button and get groceries. Um, all of that is like deeply fascinating. I think we talk about that at a very deep level on the show and on the site and other tech sites. We all talk about like the specific turns of the screw, but if you look back over the sweep of ten years, that is the whole story of the world. Right, like in like, our relationships to society are mediated by apps on a phone, like just overwhelmingly that is true. Like, but so here's 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 my question to you. Yeah, you were gonna say all that on CNBC because typically when you're on CNBC, you only get about like. Oh yeah, so the seconds. second part of that sentence because the the the, the, uh, the second question was what's the next ten years? Right. In what I I think I've said this on the show. I had like a failed column attempt at this. I think that might be like peaked yeah and now what's happening is we're putting sensors and screens and things in other objects and we're starting to diverge off of the phone right because people want to have different experiences elsewhere that aren't always completely mediated by the phone right and i think that 
cycle back and forth is really interesting. I think it's a long, it has a longer period than you might expect. Like we're always expecting like this year at CES, everything's like, it's the echo and like the echo is going to kill the phone. Like that's going to take a decade. But what's super interesting about that swing away. And we've been talking about the swing away for a while now is the rules are still not set in the same way that they were not set for smartphones before the iPhone. They were playing by the wrong rules. Uh, And the competition is also uh, broader and way fiercer than it is with phones now in the same way that smartphones were. So we just reviewed the Echo Show, for example. Uh, Fascinating device. It does not act like a tablet at all. It acts like a speaker that happens to have a screen on it. Apple's coming with their thing, and their their play is to have a better music experience. Google's play is to know everything about you through your Google account, except for your work Google work calendar because they are terrible <laughs> at multi-account stuff. Um, By the Microsoft, way, everybody at Google has a personal email and a work email. I, How do they not ah, have this solved? Ah, ah. Literally every Google employee it's have this as this problem. Crazy making. Sundar Pichai has this problem. Yeah. Um, but when you look at what's happening in the like just the smart speaker market, and don't even don't even talk about the rest of the smart home stuff, which I still feel like is more nascent than most people want to admit. Um, it's a much fiercer, broader, smaller competition, smaller in terms of like the scale of the market competition, and it hasn't had that crystallizing moment yet. And nobody knew that there was going to be a crystallizing moment from the iPhone for sure until, you know, a year in in the App Store, right? It wasn't clear that it wasn't just going to be a doggy dog five-person fight for the next decade. Yeah. Um so it might be that we get that with whatever is next after the iPhone. Like 2 years ago I wrote at CES that we know what comes after the iPhone, it's Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Um and that's a thankfully we're using that term less, but this idea that Computing, like Walt calls it ambient computing, right? It's what that ecosystem looks like, I think, is going to be more interesting and more diverse than the duopoly between iOS and Android and smartphones. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong. Like, I could be totally dead wrong. But I I don't get the vibe that that, like, that competition between all the, these big companies that are doing all this stuff is going to have a like really clear obvious oh everybody's doing it wrong we fixed it here it is bam moment that we had with the iPhone yeah i think there's something interesting there's an interesting parallel in software where uh you basically you have uh monoliths and you have like that well for for a brief moment there was a really hot term in in software development where you'd build things with microservices mm-hmm. it's like monoliths are messy it's one big thing, and if you change one part, you can break another thing. So let's split it up into lots of little parts that each do one thing, and they do really well. And that's like the pre-iPhone life. I had my Rio. I had my uh, Mavica. <laughs> and uh, I had my cell phone. Did you have the floppy drive Mavica? Was, was it, it Mavica? W- I always said Mavica. Was it Mavica? I always said Mavica. They, they had them for our high school yearbook. Oh, I, I, never, I never used one. Um, you know, you, you'd have one thing, and, but but that's just like that's those are disparate things. They weren't network. They weren't yeah. connected, and they didn't, weren't expected to work as 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 a whole. And then like Apple kind of tried to make the computer the digital hub, but they stopped doing that as much when the iPhone was just a monolith that had everything all all in it. It was all one thing. 
So what happened with the software is tons of companies started like re-engineering their software to be microservices, where you'd have these tiny little th- so- pieces of software that would do one business role, and then it would communicate somehow with a system that would kind of manage all of those things. Mm-hmm. Turns out that's really, really hard to create like a, a, a good distributed system. Like who's in charge of restarting something if it fails? Who, you know, who's in charge, period? Yeah. Uh, the, the internet works because everybody's kind of like, all we're all our own independent nodes and we know what we want and we know what we want to achieve and the internet's sort of a, a communication medium. But if, if it, something, if you ask the internet, hey, internet, can you go do something for me? <laughs> you, you can't. You can't get, and so, so. There, I mean, I did ask Twitter to tell me some jokes today and was successful. That's great. <laughs> Just that's to be great. clear. Those are people. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so there are, are, are real success stories of, of like microservice type architectures. Um, and, but it, that's still like an open question in software. And so I'm just wondering, like, if, 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 if we start moving to lots of little devices doing single purposes or that are focusing on one task, if that will remain really frustrating to use, like, because of just, like, the inherent problems in creating distributed systems. Like, this whole, you know, this whole idea that Google Assistant is different on, like, every different system, or that sometimes my Chromecast doesn't work. You know, YouTube hardly ever breaks when it's all inside my phone. Right. But once it starts talking to some other devices, it gets, you know, it gets more complicated. There's no, like, there's no single logical home for it or canonical home for it. It becomes a different thing depending yeah, on where you who's are. Who's in charge of that? Yeah, I mean, what I, it's funny because I know a lot of people are going to answer that question differently. Like, was it the iPhone or was it smartphones? In in particular, Android, right? Like, we can't yeah. discount the Android explosion. It's obvious that Android has sold more phones; it has more market share. But the reason I keep coming back to it's the ten year anniversary of the iPhone, and it's useful to say the iPhone mm-hmm. actually let all this change. To me, comes down to the app store like fundamentally the notion that you're going to buy a beautifully designed device and developers can target it in like a pretty fixed set of hardware constraints and that consumers will learn that downloading a new app will give this thing more capabilities mm-hmm. has not yet played out in the same way on the what is it called now is it the play store play yes store. it's, it's still the play, play store. store they haven't changed it yeah. this week no. um i always say play store and people correct me because the, the the store store where you buy the phones is no longer the, the Play Store. That's the Google Store. That's that's because I always buy phones on this show. That's yeah. why I always stop. <laughs> is there a new phone for me to buy on the show yet? Uh, um, but the, I don't think that's yet happened on the Play Store, right? Like people buy Android apps, but the the vibrancy of that market is not yet matched the vibrancy of the App Store. And I think it's the, it's fundamentally the App Store that drove the iPhone to be the thing that it is now. I would say the vibrancy is there. I think the, the 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 quality of your median iPhone app is higher than the quality of your median Android app yeah. for various reasons. Um, and the money that you can make on iPhone for a developer is higher than the money you can generally make on an Android phone for, again, various reasons. Um, the reason that I give more credit to uh, the iPhone than to Android is Android like fundamentally started its life as a reaction to the iPhone. As it was originally conceived by Andy Rubin and Google, it was 
basically a BlackBerry competitor. Right. It wasn't even necessarily going to have a touchscreen. And they redid the whole thing when they saw the iPhone. Right. And there's that great photo of the HTC phone. Yep. Well, the 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 one before the G1 was it was actually like a Windows mobile phone that had been you're just trolling me right now cuz know. you know the answer. It was an HTC phone. It it looked very strange. Um <laughs> It's and a show. We're supposed to talk to each other. It's phone, not just me saying things I know you when, know. When, when Google said, you know, we don't want that phone anymore, HTC said, okay, uh, well, we'll put it back on the shelf. And then uh, when Palm was flailing and needing to make yet one more Windows Mobile trio while they tried to create WebOS in the background, which was itself a backup plan because they were trying to do this other Linux thing, which was itself a backup plan because they had screwed <laughs> up on another thing. They walked up to HTC and said, you got anything? And they're like, well, Google didn't want this. And that turned into the Trio Pro, which, by the way, was an amazing phone. Yeah, It had a button for Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> you could so, toggle the Wi-Fi by hitting a button on the side. So we, let's talk about that, and then we can take the break and, and move on to other things. Because you actually did review the Echo Show this week. I did. There's a lot of conversation about iPads and laptops that we should talk about. But yep. um, let's talk about that kind of state. I think one of the other really important things of the iPhone and of Apple, and I think it's actually now a huge challenge for Apple. Apple did the iPod. It was like a beautiful piece of design. They did the iPhone. It was the first kind of like beautiful phone. There were, Nokia made a bunch of beautiful phones, but this was the first one that skyrocketed in sales like this. Um, it feels like the the mass appeal of the iPhone as a status object, as a design object, has actually taught every other company that they need to think this way. So like famously for years, like Mac hardware was better than Windows hardware. Yeah. That's not the case anymore. Like right. Windows hardware is really nice. Famously, for years, like there was the iPhone and there was the Droid, and the Droid basically looked like a muscle car, right? It was like, right. It was a cool piece of hardware, but it was not the fit and finish of that thing was not the same as the iPhone in that, at that moment in time. That is just not the case anymore. Like the S8 is a beautiful, yeah, phone. I thought you were like leading up to saying that the Echo Show is beautiful because, dude, it is not. No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just saying I think that. That expectation from consumers that everything should be designed well yeah. and thoughtfully created. And I mean, Panos Panay was on the show uh, two weeks ago now, yeah. and he just said the word craftsmanship like every other word. Yep. Because he knows that's what consumers want. That's like Apple started selling that. Do you think that Apple still occupies that space exclusively, or is like is it encroached? I, like that 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 to me is the other main legacy of the iPhone. Is it created this expectation that you would have? this thing in your pocket all the time that was like really well designed and that was designed around you as a person rather than a computer in your pocket. Yeah, I don't think they occupy that space exclusively. I think they created that expectation and many other companies have risen to meet it. I think that Apple has slightly more freedom to design the thing that it wants to design because it also like designs the software. And so when it wants to make, I don't know, a pair of Bluetooth headphones. It could just make whatever it feels like because it like doesn't really care if it works with anything else. When, you know, some other company needs to design a pair of Bluetooth headphones, they have to test that shit up against a bunch of Android phones. And all of a sudden they're like, ah, and they have to make sure that it will work across that stuff and it limits what they can physically design. Whereas Apple, you know, when they make a new, when Apple makes a new laptop, they just 
make the exact thing that they want because it matches the software. When HP goes to make a laptop, they have to make sure that it'll work on Windows, and they also have to please a bunch of other stakeholders. Apple doesn't care about the carrier stakeholders. They don't really care about like enterprise stakeholders as much as other companies have to. So they have fewer outside constraints on what they make, and so they generally are able to make slightly nicer things. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, it feels like Apple's the only company that's like really writing its own script. So like while there are tons of companies that beat Apple in almost each type of thing that Apple does, Apple kind of has that freedom. I also wanted to point out that there's this really good Ars Technica piece that's about the first iPhone SDK. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to think of like Steve Jobs left Apple and then he started Next, which is an operating system based on Unix. And then next became OS X, and then OS X became the iPhone. And the, like, there's these like deep software roots, and I think it's part of what made the app so good. Like Apple basically, you know, made a new skin on top of it and locked it down in a lot of ways. But there was there's like real quality software underpinning. Can I can I blow your mind? Yeah. Go back a step earlier in that story, yeah, and yeah. Unix was developed at Bell Labs. From AT&T, and then go a step later in that story, AT&T was explicitly told they're not allowed to make any customizations to the Unix software. Really? Yeah. Because uh, like Singular, Singular turned into AT&T and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 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 Unix came out of Bell Labs. Hmm. In the end. It's all AT&T. <laughs> it's, always, <laughs> it's always just AT&T. It's <laughs> all Bell. Uh, if we're complimenting your competitors, which I'm always happy to do, uh, there's also a great story on Motherboard about the first iPhone dev team and like how the jailbreak scene took off. Mm. Uh, and it's wild, because it's still there. There's like 20-year-olds in Italy jailbreaking iPhones, and they can jailbreak a 7 running iOS 11 like to plug it in a computer. But the market for it is gone. Like, yep. people, people don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, anyway, go read all... Read the Verge mostly, sure, and then go check out our technical. <laughs> Every now and then, we'll allow the you to read other sites. <laughs> All right, I'm going to read an ad, uh, and then we're going to do a quick segment. I talked to Russell Brandom about the crazy cyber attacks that happened all over the world this week. Um, it's actually like in another in another time and place, it would be the biggest story in the world. Actually, that there are viruses bringing down like some of the biggest corporations in the world. So I'm going to read the ad. We'll talk to Russell. We'll come back. We got to talk about. The Echo Show. Uh, Dan reviewed the Eero, which I think is an interesting thing to just talk about sort of generally what's happening there. Um, and then... I previewed iOS 11. We just put up a Sierra thing. Like, yeah, there's, there's, all, there's all fun. Let me, let me read this ad. Let me tell you about Norton Wi-Fi routers. Do you have the internet at home? If you do, then chances are you have a Wi-Fi router. And if you have a Wi-Fi router, that means cyber criminals can hack into your home network, including Wi-Fi to access your credit card information that may be stored in your laptop or the family photos on your phone. You can tap into your baby monitor, which is all very creepy. Well, Norton, by Symantec, the leader in digital security for over 30 years, has built a secure Wi-Fi router called Norton Core. It looks very cool. But don't be fooled. Underneath Norton Core Stylish Exterior is a powerful security technology that helps turns your home Wi-Fi network into a digital fortress. It discovers your personal connected devices. It identifies vulnerabilities and helps secure them. If something's breached, the core will quarantine the threat. Norton Core also features parental controls that let you decide when and where your kids go on the internet. It has a 1.7 gigahertz dual core processor to deliver blazing fast internet speeds. So you can just get the security you need and the speed you want with the Norton Core. Go to norton.com slash vergecast to save $30 if you pre-order before July 1. That's norton.com slash vergecast. 
All right. So I have here yeah. today, live in the studio, Mr. Russell Brandom. How's it going, Russell? It's great. Thanks for having me. Here's what I know about you, Russell. Mm. You are the only person that has ever made me interested in cybersecurity. <laughs> Uh, Not even the Mr. Robot program, uh, Hackers the Film. No, but you were there with me when we did the after show. (laughs) Hackers the Film was not about cybersecurity in any sense of the word. That was about haircuts. Um, Okay. There were massive cyber attacks this week. Can you just start at the start? Um, Okay. So, yeah. So, essentially, if you got hit by this, your computer basically immediately shut down. It encrypted all of the everything on your hard drive, all of your data, and then you got a screen saying, send $300 to this Bitcoin address and, like, send us this email uh, if you ever want to, if you ever want your data back, right? So, and it hit a lot of places. Uh, Merck, the giant pharmaceutical company, um, someone who worked there DM'd me actually and said that they were uh, more than 50 of their, com- 50% of their computers, like, worldwide wow. were hit by this in some form or another, which is... If you think about the size of that company, you know, uh, Maersk, the shipping company, which a lot of people don't know, but it's the largest shipping company in the world, uh, is still not running ships into this New Jersey harbor like today, two days afterwards, which is like each – it's just an insane amount of financial damage. Does this attack have a name? It has too many names is almost the problem. So Petya is one because it was – this code was similar to a family of ransomware that was known as Petya, mm-hmm. but then there were important differences. So another firm called it not Petya, and those two names were equally popular for a while, which was really confusing. And then someone else decided to call it GoldenEye. Oh, We've just been saying Petya because I don't sure. think people really so Petya hit yeah. Maersk, it hit Merck. Any companies not starting with an M? Uh, Rosneft, the the Russian uh, oil company, uh, FedEx. Oh wow, we've got some Danish. Uh, it was like weirdly regional, but yeah, uh, a lot of people. Yeah. So like world under attack, right? I mean, oh yeah. What, what, like, were they after money? Like what was the goal here? So this is what's weird. Normally, if you see this kind of thing, it's, it happens often enough that there's a name for it. It's ransomware. And it's a pretty, like if, if you're a, a cyber criminal, this is like a pretty reliable scam is you usually look for some medium-sized company that doesn't have great cybersecurity, $300 is not a lot of money for someone Mm -hmm. in that situation who wants to recover from, like, a disastrous cyber incident. So usually they will just pay off, and then you decrypt their computer and everyone walks away at least moderately happy. (laughs) Um, And this works. Like, this is a thing that happens in it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I think, you know, if you're, you're like, a, a... cybersecurity officer for like a company this is this is one of the main things you're looking at it's like okay we might get hit by ransomware um but this was different so it was really really big which usually you don't want ransomware to be because you want to stay under the radar you want people to be paying you to avoid publicity um so you pay pay them 300 dollars so you don't have to tell your boss basically um it was really really big and it also wasn't very good at being ransomware it was around 50 people worldwide paid up which is just not very many. Um, And in part, it's because it doesn't seem like they were able to actually decrypt any computers. So they they asked for payment. After you paid them, you were supposed to email them at this random email address. And they didn't even pick like ProtonMail or some sort of robust email provider. It was just this random German company that was like, oh, they're using this for crime, we'll immediately shut down the email. So you couldn't contact them. And then as people looked at the code, it turned out that 
they were deleting these boot files, which you would need in order to run the decryption. So they couldn't decrypt them remotely. Like it's possible someone could recover it, but like it's just you would not be able to perform the service of ransomware on this. So he's basically wiping these computers. So then, okay, if they maybe are they bad at ransomware or were they after something else? Mm-hmm. The other thing about it is that it hit Ukraine really, really hard and not just like companies in Ukraine, but a lot of really central infrastructure. So the central bank was involved and the Kiev metro, the Kiev airport, uh, just a lot of kind of really central services. Um, and it seems like that was deliberate. Like a lo- the the virus itself was really good at traveling kind of within networks, which is – so once one person at the company got it, yeah. everyone got it, uh, which is one of the reasons these really big companies were were so vulnerable to it. But it seems like the initial infection points were mostly Ukrainian in nature. There was like a, a, a sort of poisoned software update for this Ukrainian tax software and then there was what they call a watering hole attack where they got this Ukrainian news site and sort of anyone who visited it got this malware. Um, but it was really specific to Ukraine, which is weird. It's not like a choice you would make usually if you were yeah. a ransomware guy. So who is like really good at cyber things and hates Ukraine? A lot of people are looking at Russia and thinking – is this part of a larger cyber campaign? Is this maybe like more in the lines of an ongoing guerrilla warfare campaign uh, rather than just like straightforward criminal acts? Right. And obviously Russia is constantly in the news because of whatever yeah. may or may not have happened with our election. Well, well what did happen with our election, yeah. to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, is is, there, is this starting to be like the dawn of a new way of thinking about Russia and its cyber capabilities or is this well known and now they're just doing it and they don't yeah, have any repercussions? I mean, so the other, the other thing is they, they, there was a, a more sophisticated attack arguably against this uh, – a sort of electric utility in Ukraine in December of 2015 that a lot of people saw as um, – you know, electric utility, it's critical infrastructure. It's like extremely cold in Ukraine in December and so – having this go down for like six hours. I mean, the ability to deprive people of electricity is like a fairly fundamental thing. Uh, It wasn't down for that long, but it really got a lot of people's attention and it was widely attributed to Russia. So uh, yeah, I mean, this is definitely a weird and new thing. And I think the weirdest and newest thing about it is we don't 100% know what happened and it's very difficult to respond in like a in a sort of national diplomacy political way if you if you're not really really sure that this was something that the russian government chose to do it's kind of like you just get away with it like yeah. you can't really respond in any diplomatic way what was the way. vulnerability here is this something that you can that they just yeah. didn't update from Windows 95? Like, ha- what happened? Like, so this, specifics. Is, this is one of the other weird things about it. So WannaCry, which was kind of like this, you know, last month, there was this specific vulnerability. And it's something that, uh, you know, was leaked publicly uh, by this weird group. The general assumption is that it was an exploit developed by the CIA and then – or sorry, the NSA. And one of their kind of remote staging posts was compromised and, and this this – 
thing got out in the wild and these criminals leaked it. And then, you know, uh, two weeks later, it was being used in ransomware and it was really damaging because not everyone was patched, right? This is not really like that. I mean, it used that same exploit, but after a, the other global ransomware attack, like most people were patched. And certainly a company like Merck, like one of those large companies, they're going to be prepared against this. Like they yeah. have – the problem was not that they weren't patched. It was one of – I mean the vulnerability was something kind of more fundamental and kind of stickier. I think for years cybersecurity people have been talking about over-provisioning in networks, which is one of these like – it's not a very sexy – like it's not like the spy exploit <laughs> thing. But it's just like too many people have admin access yeah. in every network and this is like absolutely the – like. A, a classic thing. Well, if you have admin access and you're on a Windows network, there are lots of Windows tools that let you remotely install software on other computers on the network. And so that's what this did. I mean, that that was I was talking about lateral movement. It exploited a lot of those systems. And it wasn't that there was a vulnerability in that particular version of Windows. It was just that you had admin access, so you had the power to to install the software. And you probably didn't need it. You probably shouldn't have had it. And so the guy who was clicking on the the sort of, you know, the, the Ukrainian news site yeah. shouldn't probably have had full admin access, but over-provisioning. It's everywhere. <laughs> so, like, literally... Merck, too many people had admin access on the network, and Windows software updates were just traveling across the network. I don't a hundred percent know. I mean, I don't. I don't want to say specific yeah. to Merck, but like, I assume, yeah, it was a very like large companies. There's a lot of over provisioning. There's a lot of. I mean, there's sort of these, uh, these rarely used features of Windows networks that yeah. let you. It was. WIM or WIMS, depending on which one, which I, I forget. It's like instrumentation yeah. something. Uh, but it, no one ever uses it unless you're – I mean the, the thing they say is this is the favorite of penetration testers, which is the people who get hired to break into Merck so that you can – they can say, well, this is what the hackers would do in the yes. But The cast of the movie Sneakers. I oh, believe. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so those people love this and do it all the time. Generally – we don't see it outside of that a ton, and this is kind of the first high-profile instance of it really being used to do damage. And just to do damage and chaos, right? That's that's the goal, it seems like? Yeah, I mean, they stole— To Ukraine in specific— did, All these other—were they—was it like Russia targeted Ukraine and then it just went wild and now it's everywhere, or is it— So, I mean, we don't know. The right. thing is, if the question is what were these people trying to do, once you put it out there— it just spreads and you can't control how far it spreads, you know? So, so that we don't know, we haven't found any vectors of them specifically targeting like Merck or Rosneft or any of that. Um, we have found these vectors that seem like the stuff you would do specifically to target Ukrainian targets and specifically like Ukrainian banks, mm -hmm. which seems weird. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, to play like the other side of the coin Maybe you just wanted to rob a major central bank and you thought Ukraine would be like an easy target. That's very possible. I don't know. That seems kind of dumb, but criminals do lots of dumb things. <laughs> so it's 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 just really hard to know. But I mean the, the vectors we've found so far are really the ones you choose to go after Ukraine. And it is it's just kind of suspicious given how heated things are between Russia and Ukraine right now. It just looks really bad. So what do people need to know? Do you need to like 
take any action? Is it is it one of those like, oh, Russell has to write the post about change your <laughs> passwords again? Well, last time it was it was up, you know, patch windows, right? Which is always a good it's always good advice. This one, it's really tricky. I don't think. I mean, I definitely think if you are running a network, you know check who really needs to be an admin. Yeah. That's a good one. But there isn't a silver bullet. And I mean, I'll say, you know, there are people who were doing tests and they said, you know, I had all of the patches installed. I had all of the right settings and I tried this out and I still got infected. So be careful. I mean, there there has not been a single sort of golden rule piece of advice that protects you from this so far, um, which is a little unsettling. But I'd also say... What we're looking at is a, a, a few single points of infection that mostly happened on Tuesday and then a lot of lateral movement within networks after that. And just it spread so far because everything's so interconnected at this point. So I think if you haven't been hit already, you're probably safe. Probably. <laughs> Don't get too comfortable. Very unsettling way to end this. What's my, is Microsoft said anything? Um, they have said that they their current uh, existing antivirus is aware of the thing, and they say we'll stop it. I don't want to like print that until it's confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm sort of, but that's what they say, and they have a statement, and they're very, uh, you know, unhappy about this happening. Uh, but I will say it doesn't seem like this is. When WannaCry happened, it was really like the spotlight was on Microsoft and when they had patched everything and how much they had patched. They released this emergency XP patch, and it was really like the focus was on Windows patch management. And it seems like this time around, that's not really as true. Like, it just that, that's not as big a part of why this happened. So, in a sense, I mean that's good news if you're if you're running PR for Microsoft, yeah. <laughs> but I think it is a little unsettling because there's no one at the wheel. Yeah. So I don't know. Very unsettling at the end here. It's like yeah, if I'm you're, if you you're not an, dead, you're still alive. I'm leaving and you on an no one's in control. On uh, uncertain note, that's it. Taking after Twin Peaks. I don't want you to know too much about what's going on. There's still mysteries to unravel. Well, I am excited that you are covering it, and I am excited that. Like I said, you're the, one of the few people I know who can make it as interesting as you. So thank you so much for oh, coming well, on. Oh, well, thank you. Talk to you soon. Yeah. All right, so that was Russell. Russell's great. I, I said this to him, but I'll say it to everyone. Literally the only person I talk to that makes cybersecurity seem extremely exciting and interesting. Yeah. Also, uh, uh, literally the only person who doesn't make me completely panic about cybersecurity while also actually telling me the stakes in such a way that I understand how, why I should be panicking. He's yeah. just a very calming presence. Yeah, but also very excitable. Yeah. Anyway, we're all doomed, but it's fun. <laughs> I'm telling you, Brandon Security <laughs> with Russell Brandon is going to be a new, Ooh. new segment. Um, okay, so th- a lot, just a lot of reviews and previews and things happening. Uh, we in, can't hit it all. Internet-wide fight about iPads versus laptops. Uh, Josh Topolsky went on a Twitter rampage about why the iPad running iOS 11 is real bad, which mostly I agree with. Yeah. Actually, I think everyone kind of agrees with him. Yeah. And then, and, and Tom then it, Warren agrees with him. Uh, and it's like a now it's a semantics argument over what you're – okay, let's just start at the start. Dieter, you reviewed the Echo Show. I did. <laughs> um, I got mine yesterday. I said I pissed Yeah, what do you think? Uh, yeah, right? It. Are Don't you think of it. You you expect you are expecting too much because you see the screen. No, that's not it. Really? Here's what I here's the one thing that I don't like about it. Okay. It's you, ugly as hell. <laughs> that's not it. 
when you talk to the regular Echo, uh-huh. you say Alexa, yeah. the top lights up and it spins around and looks at you. Right. Right? So it is active in 360 directions. Uh-huh. 360 degrees. 360 directions. <laughs> but if you're in that 361st direction, fuck you. Um, <laughs> so it's active in 360 degrees. Uh, that's really useful because it's in a very central location in my apartment. Uh-huh. And so like, sometimes we talk to it from the living room, sometimes we're in the kitchen, like wherever. The show has directionality. Right, the speakers face forward, the screen faces forward, the lights on the front. Yeah, and that means it doesn't feel as useful in the other parts of my house. So you'd oh. want it to like swivel around and say. I just, yes. I, I think, just having that light on the top. That I think that circular element is really important. It's really good point. Are yeah, you, but, know, but the speakers are way sits, better. Mine sits on the counter, and it's oh, the the yeah. echo was in the counter before, so yeah. Like, it's always been on a wall away from not in the middle of the room. Yeah, I, like, I, this is probably just like a very unique. You just have yours set up on like it's a, just a coffee in the table. In the so middle. wait, uh, wait you moved your Echo. Where'd you put your Echo? Uh, it is in a uh, bathroom now. Uh, I have a tap. In the we bathroom. also have to do a bunch of work to debate about what Amazon accounts the different Echoes are going to be on <laughs> because Amazon does a thing where when you say Alexa, only only the one that is closest to you is supposed to respond. But that only really works if all the Echoes are on the same Amazon account. Ah. So I had to change the Echo Show to computer because the other Echo got switched to my wife's Amazon account. It's a whole thing. We're going to have a big but, fight when I get home. <laughs> that aside, this seems like a nice – like if I get a new iPhone, I'm like, Psh, I wish I could plug my old iPhone into like Bitcoin mining or something. But no, it's yeah. just a worthless piece of trash. <laughs> so, But if you get another Echo or get an Echo Show oh, – So this is a thing you, that I think is really important about the show – uh, uses the same plug as the big Echo. Oh, interesting. Ooh. So, like, I literally took it out of the box and just like unplugged. I think, I think Amazon of all companies like thinks about things like that. Yeah, like you just put just, it in place, and you can like take the other one. And you got a new plug, and you just like do it. Yeah, they uh, should have used USB C for all of them. I'm just saying, everything should be. USB-C it doesn't all charge. The time. Who cares? Doesn't charge. <laughs> it's a better plug. Um, <laughs> I didn't get into this as much as I probably should have in the written review, but this is a very, very V1 platform. Yeah. Uh, the screen, when you ask for a recipe, doesn't stay on as long as it ought to. Mm-hmm. It There are not enough apps that are enabled to show stuff on the screen. And so the knock on the thing is the screen is generally kind of pointless. Yeah. But I stand firmly by my opinion that that's the right move and to not have put a uh, a tablet OS on this thing, to not have made it like a fire tablet because you would then you would be angry at it because you have to go over and touch it all the time. Um, Farhad actually interviewed Charlie Kindle, the head of hardware over at Amazon, and he says that their first cut at the Echo Show was just putting, you know, a tablet on it, making it, a, you know, a tablet OS like the Fire tablet, mm-hmm. and they realized that was wrong. And I'm very glad that they did that. I think yeah. my 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 TLDR for the review is: thank God it's not an Android tablet because it would have been a disaster. Yeah. It's not like, buy this thing if because if you believe that the screen will be useful later, and if you want to have a nice little kitchen TV. But don't buy this thing because it's like an amazing like tablet computer in your kitchen. It's not going to be that for a while. I, it just it's having like it show their nice timers thing. is useful. Yeah, the timer thing is great. That's it. Like yeah. it, it, it's funny. It's, so I got the thing and I set it up last night and played with it. Um, and this morning, Becky walked out and for, I was like, that's the new one. It shows you the timer. She's like, oh, that's really useful. And then she looked at me and she goes, we have too many voice assistants on our counter. Because yeah. it was like the old Echo, yeah, the Google yeah. Home. That, she's like... This has to stop. 
I'm pretty sure I'm going to put black tape over the camera. Yeah, the camera ask, seems super useless to me. Uh, you guys aren't going to give each other drop-in privileges? No. I shut that thing off. So. It asks you. Yeah. What, really? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. When you, when you yeah. plug it in and you set up in the Amazon app, it's like, turn this on. Like, it's like excited. If yeah. they just name that, like, auto answer and you could go and turn it on, I think it would seem less creepy. Auto answer? What do you mean? Because that's basically all it is. It auto answers the call for you. So, like, you have an Echo Show, I have an Echo Show, I call you, it just, like, picks up. Mm. Right? And that is a genuinely useful feature for, I think Dan has talked about having one. So his kids don't have to like monkey with a thing. You can yep. call them. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have talked about having sort of like elderly parents. You can just call them and talk. Like, yeah. So it's it's like a narrow Podcast use. co-hosts. Yeah. <laughs> just, hello. <laughs> uh, but calling it drop in and like making it a feature, I think is like a little, I think they're going to get less uptake on it. than It's just weird. It's just a yeah. weird idea. Like that whole thing about don't give give this to people that you would give keys to your house. Yeah. Like, sure, I'm with you, but being able to like that's different. You have to show up. You have to like come in. You have to be yep. there. You don't just get to start looking at me without any sort of like larger thing happening. I don't know. I don't know. Like I think. I don't know. I'm wondering if that's a generational thing. Like I feel like I'm like pretty uncomfortable with video chat. But like other people, like no, do it so differently. It's different. You video chat differently on the Echo Show than you do other devices. You don't sit there and look at it. You, it's just the video is there. You sort of walk by, talk to the person, and then you go about doing other stuff. It, it's at a stupid angle, and so I was like, oh no, this is bad, and I, I don't understand, and blah blah blah. But when you start playing with it, you can like go and look at it. Or you could just walk across the room and keep talking. It's a very, very good speakerphone. The microphones yeah. pick up everything really well. It handles echo really well. Um, and so the video calling ends up feeling a little bit more like a hangout and you don't have to give direct attention. Like video calling on a phone is really a pain in the ass because you're like, you got to stare at the thing. Do you look at yourself? Do you look at the little thumbnail? Do you look at the camera? And you can't let it drift too low because then yeah. you're yeah. showing all it's your like, chin. It's, it's a really intensive attention thing mm -hmm. but with the echo show it's, you just you start a video call and if you're not standing directly in front of it that's okay you're just sort of like talking to somebody like they're in the room and you can like wander over and look at their face if you feel like it yeah i have to use the speakerphone part you know it's uh i was again like set up last night and i didn't realize there was plastic over the front of the speakers and so your review everyone's review is like these speakers are great and i turned up and it was like rattling and shitty i was like <laughs> did everyone just lie to me and it took me until this morning to realize there's plastic over the front and like I was literally playing music and I peeled the plastic and like the room filled with music. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, it was true. <laughs> it was great. Um, so bottom line, should you buy a regular Echo or a show? Uh, if you've got an extra hundred bucks, buy the show. Yeah. But not only for putting it in your kitchen. I really wish they just put that circle light on top. There's something really powerful about that circle light. The, the Google Home has it on the top. And I think it's, that's why we use. That's why I can. I, I think Alexa is nicer to say, but just having it in the middle of the room and like being able to say, like it's still. Why did? Why don't you just not look at it at all and just trust that it hears you? There's something about having it like, like it's user feedback. It's like good. It, okay. It's pleasing to have that happen. Sure. I don't know. It's like eye contact, happen. so you know someone's with, listening with to your you. robot. <laughs> oh, other thing that's weird when you set it up. Uh, Amazon explicitly refers to it as she. Yeah. Which I it's, it's something, yep. something not great about that. Okay. Uh, you also looked at iOS 11. I did. 
it's busy. On an iPad. Busy. Yeah, busy. well, also on an iPhone, don't install the beta on your phone. Yeah. Just don't do it. It's it, it, it literally is a fire. Your phone gets hot every day. I have to reboot this iPhone 7 like twice a day. Um, I'm sure it'll get better very soon. It'll be fine. Uh, you could install it on your iPad uh, unless you use it for work every day, yeah. which that's a whole other debate. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've, I wrote 3,000 words and did a 10-minute video, so I'm sort of out of things to say other than well let me just okay go ahead. yeah it it radically changes the ipad yeah. um it uh, it makes the best case ever that you could make it your main computer uh that doesn't necessarily mean it does make the case if that makes sense yeah so i watched theaters at my house over the weekend that you was like doing the work right right when you first got it yeah and i watched him use the ipad the 10.5 ipad the new one with ios 11 on it and like swiping like a maniac keyboard cover right now Dieter's got his macbook it's because the iPad's uh, in my hotel room because I didn't want to carry two devices around. But you, but you picked one. Uh, for the office, yeah. Um, yeah. My plan is I'm using the iPad at home mm-hmm. instead of a Chromebook or taking my laptop home. And now I'm going to go buy a beefier laptop and leave it at the office. Oh, nice. And uh, I will have the iPad at home or a Chromebook, depending on if they ever make So he, here's the big debate. Yeah. And it, it was just everywhere this week. iPad versus laptop can one replace the other should we even think about it this way yeah tell me <sighs> it's the question right and yeah. it, like literally we've gotten to the point with the question where we are litigating the validity of the question itself which indicates to me that the question <laughs> is important right i feel that it is a 90 percent device yeah and that if you don't have a computer you either are just okay accepting that you can't do that other 10% or you will go to your computer for the other 10%. And that 10% of like stuff you've got to do on a quote unquote real laptop tends to like metastasize and grow into like, oh, I need this all the time. So for me, uh, I, I work a lot in a browser uh, and not being able to multitask uh, multiple browser windows side by side uh, with another app over there is a pain point for me. Um, I also don't love the way that they've set up spaces where apps get locked to each other when you set up a split screen. Yeah. Um, there's like there's a lot of little things that you have to play with and get used to. But the thing that there's a lot of stuff that was in that it used to be like I don't know 30 percent of the stuff you couldn't do. They've they've cut that down to 10, and so we can have arguments about the UI of multitasking, we can have arguments about the form factor and why don't they just make a good clamshell. Um, We can have arguments about a bunch of stuff, uh, but I believe with the new Files app and with like a push to get more developers to make stuff like Affinity Photo, that a lot of the stuff that you assumed you would never be able to do on an iPad and you need a laptop for, uh, will go away, and you'll be able to do it just fine if you can get over the mental shift to tapping and swiping uh, instead of pointing a mouse at it. Yeah, the lack of fine grained control for text stuff is still a problem for me. Um, and the other thing, like, I don't know, it's super hard to really nail down what it is other than comfort, but. Not having a, just a free-form windowing system is limiting 
in a way that I don't feel like really it needs to be. And they're just gonna I think they're just gonna keep playing around with the the interface on it. Yeah. Um over and over again. I think what 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 is clear to me is that it's now far more powerful and you can like do a bunch of stuff on it. And yeah. that bunch of stuff might eat into the time that you would otherwise use your laptop. Mm-hmm. But I think the phone and laptop combo is still such a powerful thing that the iPad has to figure out what it does better than both of those. Right. Like the, and the argument, I, I do think it's like hard to, hard to say the question is narrowly whether the iPad will replace laptops. Like there is something about that that doesn't quite get it right. Right. Because a lot of people buy iPads just to watch Netflix. And then if it does email pretty good, then you might just do some email. You know, like it, yep. it's that kind of like slowly biting away at the things you'd use your laptop for. But the core promise of the laptop is that it can just do everything, right? Without without limitation, um, or at least the core promise of a desktop OS, not a laptop necessarily. The form factor is not the thing. But um, I don't think the iPad is at that point where it can nope. credibly make that promise. And if, so if you're going to spend $1,000, $1,200 – you're going to pick utility. Yep. And I, I don't I, I don't know that we're talking about it in those terms, but every, every time I see this conversation come up, a lot of the assumption is that the iPad will eventually get there, right? The, the core assumption right. is that the iPad will start biting off more and more and more and more. And eventually, it'll just bite off everything that most people need. But that I don't think that accounts for how much people want to do the maximum amount of things for the money they spend. Right. The 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 case that I tried to make in the preview, and I don't know how coherently I made this case, but by trying to make the interface on the iPad radically simple, it made doing more complicated things more complicated. Mm-hmm. It you had to have a certain kind of like iOS or Apple expertise. You needed to know the tricks to do it. And they've solved some of those things with iOS 11, but fundamentally getting good at being super productive on an iPad is a different skill than being productive on a computer, on a traditional desktop OS. And my hunch, I I don't know is if it's a harder skill uh, than it is on a computer, but I do know it's a less prevalent skill. Everybody knows how to use a computer. Mm-hmm. And to Apple's credit, they put stuff in iOS 11 that basically recognized that fact and got rid of a bunch of the stuff that we assumed was dogmatic refusal. Like The file system, to me, they do deserve credit for doing that because until until then, they would just assume that Apple didn't believe from a, like a religious perspective that computers should have that thing available to the user. And now they're like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, well, they, they definitely swung the pendulum. Like You can have... Th- Two split screen windows, a slide over window, um, a pop up from the dock showing a thing, a notification drop down that you're expanding to reply to somebody, and a, a picture in picture video window open on on that screen if you want to. So that's one, two, three, four, five, and a half yeah. app kind of things, and it looks crazy. I like did it, <laughs> and then I like tried to take the screenshot. It was gone. Ah! Yeah. Um, understanding what's happening on a screen with that much crap happening on it is fundamentally more complicated than, oh, there's some stuff on my screen. I'm, my window's over here. I just put it there. Yeah. And now I know where the, now I know what's going on and I can go back and find it again. It's almost like the, the real question here is, is this actually simpler? No. Right. Like, But it's funny because it, 
it's being framed as people will the simple thing will eventually consume more and more of your time. Yeah. But there's a real case to be made that the like the desktop OS for that yeah. kind of workflow is much simpler. Yep. And I th- I think that's that's kind of what everyone. But the, is for for simple tasks, the desktop OS is more complicated. Mm-hmm. So for simple tasks, the iPad is simple. For complicated tasks, it's more complicated. But yeah. on the computer, the simple tasks are more complicated, and then the complicated tasks are simple. Wait, no. Yes. On a computer, everything is like kind of the same level of complexity. Okay, fair. Right. Right. Like it's yeah. a fixed level of. Right. You can just sort of like. But do that these complexity things. is higher than doing basic stuff on an iPad. Sure. Right. I. I remember this thing like years ago where like turns out uh, Japanese kids were so into their phones that they like just weren't learning how to use desktop computers. Yeah. And I know that there's a generation of people who have way higher literacy of how to use their phone than they have for their desktop computer. But what's interesting is all these productivity, I guess the, the files app is on iOS, but or on the phone version. Yep. But all these kind of new multitasking tricks and like the multi-app drag and drop and stuff, as far as we know, is not coming to the phone. The only drag and drop coming to the phone is the thing where you can drag multiple apps around on the home screen to reorganize your home screen. It Everything really else. seems like if enough people complain, Apple will like yeah. think about it. Like yeah. if if the if the iPad could be here's a computer you already know how to use. That's its, it's promise big, right now. It's, but it's not because the actual productivity stuff is a whole new like interface interface paradigm. Yeah, but the basic if you don't use that stuff, it's not there. That's actually like yeah. the most complex thing about the iPad is that so many of its interface patterns are hidden from you. Right. Yep. Where, whereas with a desktop OS, pretty so obvious. many of its interface patterns are in your face that that's why it's more complex. My, yep. my thing was like I'd gotten to this point where I was doing most of my programming on my PC. So I was like, okay, cool. My I could use my PC for like Visual Studio and Unreal and Unity type like pro- programming stuff. And then I could live this iPad life because I'm just a writer in the Mac world. But then I'm super stoked on ARKit and you, Xcode only runs on uh, on Mac OS. Yeah. Let's talk about ARKit for a minute. I feel like you and I have been sharing a bunch of ARKit stuff back and forth a little bit. What, what, it seems amazing. Like the demos that are out there, the little toys people are making. I saw one. It was made in Unity of like a robot lady dancing in a living room. Yeah. I think that's probably the best one I've seen so far. Uh, someone made a measuring tape, which was comically inaccurate, but still kind of amazing that it exists. Ac- yeah. It was better than like guess, like <laughs> eyeball on things. Yeah, it's better than nothing, but it's still an inch inaccurate. Like, <laughs> I'm with you, and it's it's like I, I I just find it so. It's just so impressive. It's just like really really good software. You can just feel it. Like yeah, I I um have like been kind of experimenting with it on on my evenings and I just like it just kind of makes sense and they give you so much yeah they give you this like the ambient light of the scene so you can like if you have like physically based like materials on your 3d objects they can kind of take on the the tint of, of like they you know you can adjust your exposure as the physical cameras exposure adjusts and it's just so like there's just lots of little things that make it more compelling but it's just also it's just so easy to use uh that there's going to be a lot of this stuff and i feel like this will be a great like proving ground for like if there is any useful ar 
it's going to be discovered in the next year of this, yeah. you know, of people of developers experimenting with with AR now that's so accessible to them. And maybe AR w- won't prove to be that useful, but I do think it will be very important and, and fundamental shift in computing. And so I'm pretty pretty excited. What's the best thing you've seen? There's just a blank look on his face. <laughs> he really wishes the best the thing was is being in my mind. The thing that I haven't built yet. You want to hear my idea? Yeah, pitch me. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to like create this like virtual gallery, and you like you know drop these objects in the scene, but every object is playing like a loop and uh, of sound, and the, based on how close you are to them, like the sound will like get louder, and so you can kind of do this like live audio mixing by like moving around through these. Oh, uh, that's objects. really good. I don't know if Rich Cast are aware that Paul is the part owner of a digital art gallery, but that is one of those things that makes it abundantly obvious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I think that, like, do you see the, the flyover demo in Maps? Have you played with this on your iOS 11 phone? Mm. Apple changed it so Maps, when you hit flyover, it just lays it down in AR. So you oh, can, like, wow. walk through a city. Like, not, not in real, but, like, right. you're huge. But you can just like wander around a city in AR. Hmm. Like that's the sort of thing where every other AR platform is trying to do these like very targeted things, and Apple's just going to layer it throughout the system in different ways. Yeah, that seems really fascinating. Well, I, I think I've said this before on the Vergecast, but what's so impressive to me about AR Kit is uh, Apple has solved. Apple has figured out that you don't need fifty Project Tango sensors on a phone. They're not trying to eat the elephant. They're like. If you just enable so- through software 80% of what people tend to expect from AR, it feels like 100%. Yeah. Like, I believe that Project Tango's spatial awareness is way better than Apple's spatial awareness on a current iPhone. I also believe that just knowing that there's a flat surface here and this is the color temperature on it is enough for a vast array of things that are going to be really fun and potentially really useful. And so Google, by like trying to solve the whole problem before they get real devices out to humans, is doing itself a disservice because Apple is solving the, a big enough chunk of the problem that it's going to get a huge leg up. We're going to have to just start doing like lots and lots of AR kit demo roundups. Yeah. I can f- it's going to yeah, be... Yeah, we, we're putting one of them on Facebook. I, I, okay. I, put, I put a bunch together. Nice. A bunch of little, little things. I mean, this is the argument to buy the next iPhone, right? Like, they're going to monkey with the camera to make it better for this. Mm-hmm. They're going to have the next great A-series processor that has even more horsepower to figure it out. Like, well, right now, it's like using 10% of the, the phone's processing power. Only 10%? Mm-hmm. That's wild. But, you know, like, they, they can't just count on design. And the leaks that are coming out, like, if that's really the design of the next iPhone, it's not substantial. It's better. It's not substantially different. Like, yep. But this will be if they if they close the circle, this will be the arguments by that. Phone. Do you think this is Apple building up to AR glasses, or this is just them, just like making phones more interesting? I think the glasses are so hard. I think so too. But man, do I want? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's so bad. I, it, it's just it's so hard. Like, I, I, yes, the answer is like yes, I do, but. I don't think you build up to the glasses by doing it on the phone first. I think you make the glasses the glasses. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
you can't if you do all the stuff on the phone and you build this huge investment in the phone like right. Shreve, no, but that's a, that's an applications versus like understanding difference so you right. build like the applications for the phone are not going to be the applications on the glasses right but the things that apple and developers learn by doing it on the phone they will be able to apply those learnings to the application on the glasses sure. so they are currently teaching a million teenage developers how to put a, a dancing wookie on a table mm-hmm. you know half some some half a percent of those teenagers are going to make something that they learn on for the glasses that they learn how to do by making the dancing wookie yeah that's what i'm thinking exactly the dancing wookie yeah yeah i'm thinking about a dancing wookie <laughs> yeah all right paul uh-huh every week you do a segment mhm has the same name i didn't forget this week yeah it's like really did important. you forget the second ad though no i did not okay good it's kind of a two-parter. Okay. It's called spin safety. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so. I saw this story. So was it so two good. days ago, I wrote about uh, this company called Blue Spin that uh, put a on Indiegogo a Bluetooth fidget spinner, which is the first I'd ever heard of a Bluetooth fidget spinner. Yeah. And it's a fidget spinner that, like, tracks your... Um, Spins. Tracks your spins with a magnet and also tracks movement with accelerometer instead yeah. of touch sensor. It's very exciting. I'm really stoked on it. It has like a tiny battery in it that's not rechargeable then just like lasts for a really long time because I guess they're using Bluetooth low energy. Yeah. And the, did, today, I see this story on our website, or actually, no, it, it, it needed to be edited by somebody. Um, so I saw it in our chat. It was like, Bluetooth fidget spinners <laughs> exploding. I was like, oh no. Oh, no. I, just put, uh, I just wrote about it on Indiegogo. Oh I, my God. And so it turns out that there's these fidget, these Bluetooth fidget spinners uh, that are like Bluetooth speakers. <laughs> and, and so like it's happened twice where these Bluetooth fidget spin, spinners have exploded while charging. And like it's so funny. Like the. Like one of them didn't even come with a charger, and and like like th- this lady's like saying like I I wanted to contact the company, but there's no company name. It just says made in China. Yeah, it's a, it's such a wild world, and it like I feel like that like wild west mentality is kind of working for fidget spinners. It's like because you can buy a five dollar fidget spinner, like if you walk. 10 meters in any direction you can per- in New York you could purchase a fidget spinner. Yeah. Uh, but that's probably not a great thing to do with bluetooth devices that are have a built-in rechargeable battery. I really enjoy the fact that every product eventually has a bluetooth speaker integrated into it. Yep. It's just it's just a thing. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Like we had hoverboards here the other day. Bluetooth Happened to speakers. have bluetooth. Yeah. There's bluetooth. Yeah. Um on that same note, I actually had an entry for your segment this week. Oh. The Galaxy Note 7 Fandom Edition. Oh, my God. Which is amazing. <laughs> it's just amazing I, that I, Samsung is releasing a Note edition. 7 called the, the Note 7 FE, which stands for Fandom Edition. So people who are sad <laughs> that they don't have Note 7s because the next one can buy a Note 7. I think that's great. Uh, if you're going to just own something that completely... Yeah, and you're like, you know, this phone kind of exploded a bunch, but it was actually a great phone. Like, Having, if you still want just, it, I'm just gonna say, 
and this is a Verge cast, and so sometimes <laughs> our humor maybe is not appropriate. I'm just going to say, having it end any like it ends in Dom, and it's a thing that could potentially burn you. Yeah, there right. it is. <laughs> if you don't understand that joke, ask your parents. This is like <laughs> this is like if 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 somebody at this party spilled the steak sauce on Dieter's jacket. Yeah. And then they took his jacket away from him. They're like, you can't have this anymore. There's steak sauce on it. And then they framed it in a picture frame and they tried to sell it to him. I think it's great. I love it. Yeah. I mean, someone at Samsung had that idea. Yeah. Like first they're like, you're gonna we're gonna refurbish them and sell them and is it another phone in a different country? Cause we have them. They're fine. And then they're like, you know what? I bet Samsung fans still want to buy I'm gonna buy one. What, calling it, you're right. Calling it a fan, fandom edition <laughs> is a, a really great way for them to try and like maybe give the brand a little bit of shine before they announce the next one. Because now there's going to be a bunch of people saying, I'm a fan. I wish I could have had this. And so I got the fandom edition. And so they're, they're like giving the note brand a chance to have a nice happy moment yeah. to maybe possibly. So Let here's the, next the question, note, which is the rumor to be coming. The Galaxy soon. Note Seven, yeah. still banned on planes. Yep. Are they going to have to like, write a letter to the FAA, being like, "No, no, no, this is the Phantom Edition." Yeah. <laughs> are they have to change the announcement because they already were not doing a great job with the announcements. Yeah. Yeah. They're like Samsung washing machines are not allowed <laughs> on this plane. Uh, are they going to have to be like Galaxy Note Sevens are not allowed? But we can check to see if you have the Phantom Edition before you fly. Yeah. A lot of questions here. Yeah. All right, that is the show. Uh, I want to mention something very important at the very end here. Uh, Game of Game of Thrones is back on The Verge. Game of Thrones is starting in two weeks. Uh, Emily Yoshida has handed the throne master. I don't know what you call somebody who runs a fantasy league at. It, it, you'd say you hand the baton. It's like a scepter. It's the commissioner. It's the scepter. The commissioner. She's handed the, the, what's the... What's the egg thing that kings have to carry? Uh, egg thing, the Damn. egg of the what? egg of the egg of abandonment. No, it's a thing. All right, it's like Roman emperors had an egg, and that signified the Roman emperorness. Not like the signet, the the egg of authority, <laughs> the, the ovoid of responsibility, Fabergé egg. Yeah, the sphere of the kingdom. Maybe it wasn't Roman. All right. Maybe it's like Holy Roman. I, no, we can't just move past this. You're saying the kings had an egg that allowed them to gain them their powers. Like, very confidently, too. What was the egg that kings had? Hey, everybody, you remember that egg, right? It's on the tip of my tongue. I don't know what to search for. I'm searching for, like, rich person egg. Yeah, rich person egg. egg. I'll say. All right. If you know the answer to that question. Egg for kings. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point, uh, tweet, Dieter's at Backlog. Oh, my God. I'm sure he would like to know the answer about We're his egg question. Uh, anyway, Emily Ishida has handed the scepter of commissionment uh-huh. uh, to Caitlin Tiffany on our team. I think Verge House listeners should know Caitlin. Caitlin's wonderful. She's going to be running Game of Game of Thrones. You can go to Fantasizer, sign up for Game of Game of Thrones, or a fantasy league for Game of Thrones. It's coming back. There's a post on the site with all the instructions. Check it out. I love it. It's like one of my favorite series that we do. So that is my little housekeeping note. You can also tweet at us, Dieter, who's still furiously Googling. I just, uh, uh, just FYI, I just Googled the accoutrement of power just okay. to see if that would do it. Well, that just sounds like garnishes. <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds like like carefully sliced radishes of authority. Um, 
Dieter is at Backlon. Yes. Paul is at Future Paul. I'm at Reckless. Uh, you can tweet at us. We love your feedback. You can go to iTunes. Leave us feedback there. Uh, you saw, also check us out on Anchor, which is a new podcasting platform. Andrew Marino, our producer, has been putting cool experiments uh, with Caitlin, with Casey Newton, with other people on Anchor. I think Casey's been running it this week. Uh, so check us out there. That is where we're piloting new podcast ideas. So we love your feedback. You can also listen to most of that stuff in the Verge Extras podcast feed. Just let us know. We're, I'm, we're, we need to have more shows. We're going to start making more shows. But we're just doing a lot of little pilots and experiments to figure out what that next thing is. So we're dying for your feedback on that. In the meantime, you can also listen to other great podcasts about tech from Recode. Uh, Recode has Too Embarrassed to Ask with our wonderfully talented senior editor, Lauren Good. Uh, it has Recode Decode with Kara Swisher uh, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. And if you're a media nerd, highly recommended. But that's it. That's Vergecast. Rock and roll. The Globus Krusiger. Yeah. The Globus Krusiger. I got it too. Well, that is not <laughs> a good you. name for a podcast. Thank you, Yahoo Answers. The Globus Krusiger. It's used on coins and iconography along with the scepter as part of the royal regalia. It's Latin for cross-bearing orb. Yeah, it's an orb with a cross on the top of it. Well, now Caitlin has it and she runs Game of Game of Thrones. Sign up on Fantasizer. That is The Verge Cast. It's over. This is a real rock and roll ball. Globus. <laughs> <laughs>